the privilege it's ours this evening to gather, to assemble in this particular fashion and way is always an exalted one. And certainly this evening as we come together in a peaceful way, how blessed indeed we can be. So many places in the world as we seemingly see on the evening news and other places is so full of turmoil, so full of sometimes despair and even warfare and other things. And yet in the peaceful solitude as the sun and as the shades of evening gather, we can study the portion of the Word of God, sing praises of exultation. As we engage in that particular aspect of a study of the portion of His Word, I might invite you to turn to the 55th chapter of Isaiah. It'll be there where we shall encamp for, through a fair part of the lesson tonight. The 55th chapter of that book called Isaiah. Some opening thoughts, comments, if you will, might help again place us in the location of that 55th chapter. I might suggest that the book of Isaiah, as you might observe here, divides very, very naturally into two major, rather large parts. Interestingly enough, as you and I know, there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, and yet that exactly corresponds in chapter-wise to a very lovely division of the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah comprise the first major section, it is in that section that we see God's judgments poured out on nation after nation, but especially His own people, the people who had rebelled against Him, the people who He urged and exhorted to follow Him, and yet they refused rather rebelliously to do it. And so we begin to see descriptions of God's people. In chapter 5, that vine that brought forth unfit grapes, if you please, that, that represented Israel. Later, we notice in chapters 11 and 12, descriptions again about a kingdom, God's own people that had failed so. Perhaps to get to the heart of the matter, if that's the first 39 chapters, God's judgment and the failings of His people, what about the last 27 chapters? From chapter 40 on to chapter 66, there you have a remarkable presentation about coming blessings and coming days highlighted with the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord when He would come into the world about the kingdom He would establish, the kind of peacefulness that would reign therein, the characteristics that attach to that kingdom, namely the features of the universal nature of it, everyone is invited into it, that was so different from what was the prevailing Jewish consideration by many. That little division can often be helpful to embed in our heart as you think about the book of Isaiah. It really summarizes all 66 chapters in terms of placement very, very well. As a case in point, think if you would about just a few of the issues that occur over the last 27 chapters of that book. And you'll be impressed with just a few of the things mentioned. In chapter 53, without doubt the most well-known chapter in all the book of Isaiah it's a portrayal of Jesus on the cross. It's a portrayal of His back being beaten bare for the sins of others. It is a portrayal of Him being buried in a rich man's tomb that, of course, was not His own. It is an impression of what Jesus did for all of us. You'll notice in chapter 55, which will be the place we shall encamp tonight, a reflection on the marvelous wonder of God expressed to the human family through the agency of His call. You'll notice in chapter 61, that very chapter that Jesus quoted Himself in Luke chapter 4. 
when Jesus went to his hometown, back to Nazareth, and there was given the privilege of preaching, what passage did he use as his lesson text? He used Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. You'll notice in chapter 62, we have a reflection on the name that you and I are privileged to wear, the name Christian, verses 1 and 2 of that chapter. And finally, chapters 65 and 66. Maybe there's only one phrase that needs to be mentioned out of those two chapters. New heavens and a new earth. When Peter makes usage in 2 Peter chapter 3 of that idea, he borrows it and quotes it out of Isaiah chapters 65 and 66. And thus we appreciate that even there, there was the hope held out for those that were the faithful of God who would serve Him through that Messiah. I say all of that to point out, Isaiah is a rich book. It is the first of the major prophets. It's often called the Messianic prophet. And perhaps tonight we've already seen that that is a fair description. But you and I are interested in looking carefully at chapter 55, at least for the next few minutes. As we do that, there really is a major section in that chapter that will, that will call our attention. Let me ask you to start, if you would, by looking at this particular scene that I've entitled to Seek the Lord. One of the features that seems to recur so often over these last 27 chapters of Isaiah is a description of the Gentiles and them not being outcast, not being separated, not being forced aside, not being aliens from the blessings of God. As often as the Jews considered them so, and as often as others looked upon the Gentiles sometimes as rather barbarous, uncivilized people, we find in the last chapters of Isaiah a remarkable set of passages that call this people into God's very kingdom. I've asked you to notice just a few of them. In Isaiah 54, verses 1 and 2, and I've just selected a very short statement. There a description of a barren woman who was no longer barren. She was able to bring forth, and God used that to describe the calling in of His own people, of the Gentiles, into His people. You'll notice also in Isaiah 60, verse 1, the Gentiles were called or would be called to the light of God. Finally, I would ask you to notice Isaiah 62 as well as Isaiah 65. In each instance, God's righteousness set forth. And it wasn't just reserved for the Jews, but the Gentiles were said they too would enjoy access into those blessings. Perhaps you and I have often wondered, if the Old Testament was filled with all of these passages that specifically foretold the inclusion of the Gentiles, how were so many in the New Testament era so unknowledgeable of these matters? Paul had to reprimand the Galatians. He had to reprimand the Hebrews. He had to reprimand those in Rome, those in Corinth. They all seemed to realize that they, the Jews, were supposedly always to be the chosen people and the Gentiles were not to be accepted. But all these passages foretold there was coming a day when the Messiah would come and His kingdom would be a universal one in the sense everyone would have opportunity and access to be a part thereof. That is a backdrop to this continuing part of chapter 55. Leads me to ask you to notice the language that's presented in verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7 of Isaiah, the 55th chapter. 
Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Almost immediately, we begin to appreciate there's something noticeable, something ever so worthy of consideration as it relates to the injunction of verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. In the midst of these chapters that, of course, we're reminding of the universal nature of God's call someday to all people, here was an admonition in that Old Testament era to seek the Lord, to seek Him. And I would ask you to develop it perhaps like this. It all begins with really the preceding thoughts. Did you notice what was in verses 1 to 4 of this chapter? It is very interesting language, I might confess. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Immediately that sounds very strange, doesn't it? First mention is made about those who thirst, but then he quickly makes note, come to the waters. It is to be expected, isn't it, that when an individual is thirsty you seek a place wherein water may be found. And furthermore, it says, He that hath no money. What is the emphasis, I suppose, about having no money and being coming to the waters? Well, you'll notice it's this, as the development of the chapter points out. The consideration of money was as vital then as now. The needfulness to purchase Items that were necessary to take care of oneself and one's family. And so the picture is of those who were destitute. What if you'd have no money? Can you still have opportunity for righteousness? Can you still be found right before God even if one is poor and filled with poverty? He's about to tell us absolutely the answer is yes. You'll notice he goes on to say, Come ye, buy and eat. What are they going to purchase with? If they have no money, how can they buy? Great question, isn't it? Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You'll notice that the kind of items that ultimately are going to be described are simply not these directly things like money, or rather like milk and matters like that. He's developing a case for righteousness. He's developing a case for what makes one rightfully stand before God. He's developing a case on how all of that will lead to verses 6 through 11. I would invite you to consider perhaps these thoughts with me as we revisit now that text. Come to the waters. Isn't it sweet to hear the invitation of God? God doesn't force anybody to come to the waters. He does not force anyone to be a servant in His kingdom. He encourages, He implores, He invites, He sets forth the dangers if one chooses not to, but He always allows that finally and ultimately to be the decision of each and every individual. Here the invitation is extended, at least in a sense. Come ye to the waters... You'll notice that invitation is built in a way that reminds us of so many of these other passages. 
And you and I mentioned righteousness a moment ago. I know that you thought with me easily about the Beatitudes. For therein we find Jesus say, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. And the promise that went with it, they shall be filled. Here we notice those that were thirsting for righteousness. They were admonished and urged to purchase and to buy. You'll notice also in Psalm 119, verse 102 and following, one other occasion in which we noticed again and again that assertion, that same kind of topic. I would ask you to notice maybe the bottom set of ideas. As we've talked about these customers, these who had no money and yet were urged to purchase, you'll notice how that makes us think now so readily of your status, your state, and mine. This is really the major point of the first part of that chapter. Think about you and I as believers. Those who have taken upon ourselves the invitation in the sense we've responded to it. We recognize ourselves as Christians having been added to the fold of God. Now think of it this way. What did you and I have to buy with on that occasion? We were woeful sinners. We were enemies to the very nature of God. We were aliens from Him, Ephesians 2.12. And in that statement of Romans 5.8, notice again, you and I had nothing to buy with to make us stand right before God. You'll notice, though, God purchased the necessary items for us, didn't He? He purchased our redemption. He purchased the opportunity for forgiveness. He purchased access into the kingdom of God. He purchased through the nature of His Son, the blood of Christ, the nature and characteristic. That was the main idea hidden and buried in these thoughts in Isaiah 55. Notice, you and I were indeed the consumers, but we had not a thing in the world to buy with. You and I had no righteousness before we became Christians. You and I were not able in our sin to approach the God of heaven. We were desperate, in despair, and lost. Doesn't that paint a dramatic picture of what happens when a person comes forward? It truly is a magnificent time of celebration. Picture the scene. An individual, overwhelmed as a child of the devil... That person, perhaps for some amount of time, maybe even a long time, has languished apart from the blessing of God, and in that languishment finally has been touched by the agency of the Holy Spirit's Word. And as that Spirit's Word inches its way into their heart, they become impressed by the truth of that Word and the great separation that is their life. They see no correspondence between what that book teaches and the kind of life they have lived, and therefore... Therefore, they make a choice. They choose to seek the Lord. And as they make that choice, they again undergo that transformation. It really is a remarkable metamorphosis, isn't it? You and I in the animal kingdom sometimes see a metamorphosis take place among animals. But think about what happens. That pales in comparison to what happens when a person is baptized. That person goes into the water covered in sin, dark, not nearly white like snow. But we notice that that old man of sin is buried. For after all, having repented, the man of sin died. It is no longer alive and active. And therefore, being dead, it is buried, but not beneath soil. It's buried beneath water. 
And there it remains because up from that watery grave comes a new creature, to borrow the language of 2 Corinthians 5.17. And in that newness of heart, that new man under the banner of Ephesians 4.24 is a man that now is able under constant pursuit of the Lord to realize the continuing blessings of a chapter like this one. What a change. I would ask you to notice one last thought as we transition from that slide to the next one. These consumers, these customers, though they had nothing to buy with, they were able to obtain. That very much describes your lot and mine. You'll notice at the top, though, that a very sad refrain is now put before us. And it really is a touching one. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Doesn't that suggest that there may well come a time when He will not be findable? That sounds like such a harsh reality, doesn't it? It sounds like a terrible distancing, a separation. Seek Him while He may be found. As you reflect upon ancient Israel with me, remember that this particular set of chapters, chapters 40 on to 66, was penned at a time looking forward down the stream of time to the coming of that great Son of God who would be the grand reality of all of these antitypes. However, many years would come before that eventuality would happen. The book of Isaiah was written roughly 750 B.C., Seven and a half centuries would transpire before the coming of that one. Israel would have a lot of issues to deal with over the course of those years. A lot of enemy nations and a lot of problems and a lot of terrible, terrible realities. They'll be overrun by the Babylonians. They'll be overrun by the Assyrians. They'll be overrun by the Medes and the Persians and finally by the Greeks and the Romans. Nation after nation would have their way with Israel and her people. And yet, God said, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. I would ask all of us to then give some serious thought to this possibility today. You and I do live in, a, of course, a far better dispensation. A far better reality in the sense that Christ now has come. The gospel era has certainly well begun. You and I, in fact, are living in the last days, to use the language of Peter in Acts 2, verses 14 to 16. In regard to those last days, though, notice, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. We are not by any means asserting that God will remove Himself from an individual despite that person's faithfulness and correctness. That's not at all what's being taught. But may we ask it like this. Could a person's heart and disposition become such that he or she is no longer of a heart that's touchable as easily as days gone by? Paul did mention, didn't he, in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3, about a heart that's seared as with a hot iron. It is true, and we each have seen it. An individual... But his choices, her choices in life, bring him or her to a point where the gospel seems to not be of interest any longer. They have long since made their choice to walk the pathway with the devil, and at this point it seems no one can reach them. Their parents, their friends, faithful members of the church, elders, 
For you see, they are so engulfed and entrenched, their heart be having been seared that way, they are no longer of an ear to listen. No wonder Jesus said, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We might suggest we all must then be very watchful of our heart and not allow it to be seared, to be closed and hardened to the point where it cannot be penetrated with the truth of God. For in that state, you and I are in a position to realize the reality of the unpardonable sin. Did Jesus say there is a sin that is unto death? It is a sin in which, again, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness you and I in our previous observations have noted that is a statement. It is a description of that heart that is no longer attuned to and interested in pursuing the way that God has revealed. You see, the Holy Spirit's what delivered the Word. To blaspheme the Spirit then is to ignore His Word. In that neglect, in that kind of ignoring, there is no longer a hope for anybody. Didn't Paul say in Romans 1.16... For the gospel of Christ is God's power to save. I might suggest, as you and I think about that, there's more things you and I can see as a premonition, as a reality to this dispensation in which we live. Exhortation, one after another, reads like this. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Didn't Paul say it like this in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2? Today is the day of salvation. What urgency there is. What genuine exhortation there is in passages like each of them. You notice here it again says, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Finally, the verse says, Call ye upon Him while He is near. Oh, how sweet it is to contemplate the nearness of God. Ready to be approached by your prayers and mine. But notice, what about that state of affairs when a person has chosen a path of life and that person is no longer upon speaking terms with God because God's not listening. We find in the Word of God, God makes no promise to hear the prayers of unfaithful children. He makes no promise to hear the pleas, the supplications, the urgencies relative to them. But to those who are God's faithful children, we have promises like this. Though you and I may not know how we ought to pray, we read in Romans 8.26 that the Spirit earnestly groaneth for us. When your life and mine reaches the point that perhaps in discouragement, despair, and otherwise trouble, we may not know the proper words to use in prayer. And maybe our heart is so blackened beneath the burden of the hour that we even forget to pray as we ought. But we notice that the Spirit is there to help us. Isn't it amazing to think as a Christian the Holy Spirit is ready the Holy Spirit and thus is prepared to assist you and I in striving to pray four things that we should be praying for. That genuinely is remarkable. Maybe that remarkable nature leads us to these things. This seeking of the Lord. Did you notice the tenses of the verbs that God through Isaiah utilized? Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him. Both of those are present tense, active voice verbs, even in Hebrew. It's not past tense in either case. 
when you and I thus appreciate the entering of the Christian life, we see that that life is a constant thing, isn't it? Just like we noted in the lesson this morning, to partake of the Lord's body and blood in an ongoing way. It seems even in the words of Isaiah, we find a hint to that very same truth. One last thought on that slide is this one. Isn't it amazing how it links to so many other beautiful representations about what God does to the sins of those that come to Him? You'll notice in verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That's a description of repentance, don't you agree? When the wicked forsakes his wicked way, when the unrighteous forsakes those thoughts that were impure, we have a person who is so convicted of the things of God that he or she is making an active change. And that's what Christianity in many ways has as its basis, isn't it? Through the Word of God to change you and me into people better than we were before because we have the Savior to assist us. Many times when you and I recognize problems in our life, and you and I as Christians know that they are problems, we have temptations, of course, just as much as other individuals. And yet, we know that we have one at our disposal who is ready to assist. It is with those in mind that verse number 7 closes with this remarkable promise. He will have mercy upon him, that's the Lord of course, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. There is no sin that God won't save as long as we approach Him with it. And through the blood of His Son, we avail ourselves of that detergent, that cleansing agent. We have again Isaiah commenting on that truth. With those matters as a background, now verses 8 and 9 bring us to the next point in the lesson tonight. These two verses... Read like this. These are the ones that Joe read earlier. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I would ask you to notice that isn't the statements of that passage so much a matter of easy understanding? My thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. You, know, you and I have noticed that man seems to have this remarkable consideration that he can figure out the ways of God. Man often substitutes his thinking for God's thinking. He often substitutes his preferences for God's declarations. When he does, he acts as if, I know as much as you do, God. The utter absurdity of it all. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And quite frankly, there would be no way for you and I to think God's thoughts unless He told us what His thoughts were. And thus we have the Holy Scriptures. These are, in fact, the thoughts of God presented in the words of God. And therefore, when you and I study the Holy Text, we're able to appreciate God's thoughts. But you'll notice so many times we find that God's thoughts do not harmonize or agree favorably with what man would have thought, what man would have done, and what today man still would do. Perhaps case in point would be some of these features. We've just highlighted that God's thoughts are not our own. 
many a scientist has almost beneath his breath laughed at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The creation record, because the scientist thinks that he knows a better way. Call it evolution, call it theistic presentation, whatever you like. But scientists so often think they know a better way, and they think that whatever this Bible says does not present the truth. Or perhaps another example, what about the matter of preaching? Untold thousands think that preaching, or may we say consideration of the Word, is not that essential or vital or needful. They think that there are many and sundry other avenues or approaches to heaven, and one way is just as good as another. Again, the absurdity of it all. Perhaps another example, what about the place of obedience? This God of yours is an awful small God if He demands everybody do things His way. If He is a God that is as He ought to be, He would happily welcome the thoughts, the preferences of any and all. But you see again, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. Isn't it still tempting to see how man thinks he knows as much as God? You'll notice that there's a mention of blood on that same slide. We clearly see throughout the sacred text the vital significance of blood. For without the shedding of blood is no remission, to quote Hebrews 9.22. And yet you and I, as we appreciate the place, the nature, the essentiality of blood... Man again would laugh at that. What does blood have to do with the forgiving of a man's wrongs? Well, you and I know that it's not just any blood. It's the blood of Christ and it's efficacious. It's effective, if you will, because God says so. Because that blood was pure, perfect blood, pure and guileless in every way. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 24. Maybe in light of all of that, notice these next ideas. A remarkable statement about the difference. That word higher does occur in verse number 9. The heavens are higher than the earth. Who of us has not peered up into the heavens on a clear night like perhaps tonight's going to be? And we see those distant stars and we're able to number about 6,000 of them just with the unaided eye. But we recognize those stars, they differ in brilliance, and they differ in distance, and they differ in any number of other ways, sometimes even in color. But yet we all know for certain that they're far above us. They're far away from us. They're high above where you and I now are. God says, that's an analogy. My thoughts are just that much higher than yours. My ways are just that much higher than yours. If only man through the last 6,000 years or so could have appreciated that truth and followed intently, thoroughly, and only that which is the Word of God. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Maybe in light of that, the closing thoughts on that slide. I've highlighted in italics. You and I again perhaps should emphasize that these ways, these thoughts of God cannot of your own volition and mind be figured out somehow. It is true that God has allowed through His creation you and me to figure out by invention and discovery some things. But when it comes to the spiritual realities of existence, there is no figuring them out with the scientific method. 
There's nothing you can do in a physics laboratory to test the forgiveness of sin. There's nothing you can do in a biology laboratory to give thought to the nature of the blood of Christ. Those truths are far deeper, far more profound, and far more eternal in scope. No wonder God said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. It is with that in mind that verse 9 closes again by saying, My thoughts than your thoughts. As that slide brings us from that one to the next one, isn't it impressive the way that faith has entered into this discussion in an almost indirect fashion? For if it's the case that God's thoughts and ways are far higher than our own, then you and I would be hopeless in knowing what they are unless He told us. And yet we know that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. And thus, when we open that Word of God and we appreciate that those words are indeed the epitome, the base of faith, then we understand that we're listening for the thoughts. We're listening to the instructive ways of God. It seems to go back then to the Word of God, doesn't it? That holy Bible that you hold in your lap and that I have open before me. This final slide of the lesson tonight presents us some additional ways that sometimes God's thoughts and His ways seem different than our own, at least different from the general ways of the human family. Many of those things you can readily note with me. God always wishes that which is in man's best interest. Sometimes man doesn't do that. Aren't there people in our world who are mean, who are absolutely evil in terms of the fact they'll take lives, they'll steal, they'll do whatever they need to do, harming women, killing children as the case may be. But our God is not of such a character. Notice again, God's way is different than many men's at least. You can add to that list the following. God wishes so much to forgive. And yet you and I as humans sometimes hold grudges. And sometimes we even seem to enjoy it. There are people who hold it over the head of another as if it can never in fact be righted. But our God says He will have all men to come to repentance, 1 Timothy 2.4. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. Again, amazing sometimes how different God can be than some of us in our actions, isn't it? We can add to that list the following. We notice that consideration of forgiveness and man's refusal to offer it sometimes. The closing statements of our lesson tonight, I'd bring these to you. It's not as if we've by any means covered all of Isaiah 55, but I did think it rather amazing to listen to one final attribute. Verses 10 and 11. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread the eater. And immediately that description doesn't seem strange. The rains fall, the snow comes. That snow provides marvelous nutrients and fertilizers in God's own way for the soil. And the rain, of course, provides the necessary moisture. But look what's next, verse 11. So shall my word 
In the same way that that rain, that snow provides the necessary ingredients and nutrients in God's way of taking care of His own plant creation, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. What a grand way to close the lesson. God made the explicit promise, My word shall not return unto me void. That word void means to be vain, to be empty, to be useless. God says that word that proceeds out of my mouth, it will not return unto me void, but rather it shall bring forth that which is my pleasure, that which I please. Tonight it could be that there is someone in this audience that upon the consideration of tonight's songs or something from Isaiah 55, or maybe some thoughts this afternoon as you've reflected on Jesus or some of the other statements of the Word of God, you've been challenged in a way that you know that change is needful. Your life is not what it ought to be, and you know that. But you also know that you can't change by yourself. For you see, you cannot forgive your own sins. Nor can I forgive them, nor can, in fact, Eddie forgive them, for ultimately you've sinned against God. Acts 5 verse 4. And it is to Him you need to petition for, for forgiveness. The plan of salvation then recognizes that these things are required. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If it is the case, we can be of help in that way tonight. We'd be happy and honored. But if you have become a Christian at some former day, but maybe you have stopped seeking the Lord, maybe you have denied that truth, but maybe after tonight's lesson or the thoughts of Isaiah 55, you know it's true. You know that you just haven't sought Him lately. You know that these truths of your life do not harmonize well with the Bible. You know that God hasn't given up on you. He invites you to come to Him. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Tonight, if we could be of help to pray with you, to pray for you, to speak with you. If it's a study that you need, let the elders or myself know. We'll be happy to help you. In any of these senses, tonight as the lesson closes and is thus yours, if we could assist you in some way publicly, don't, don't delay. Why not come now while together we stand and sing?